If you can have your Bibles back open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And as you're finding your place, may I, may I begin with a bit of a confession? Sometimes I look at people and I cannot help but think to myself, they'll never become a Christian. That school friend who is now such a hard-nosed business person and so obsessed with their work and their career. That sports personality whom people almost worship. That college or university student who is so self-righteous. That family member or neighbour who is so pitying of me that I'm so naive to believe in a God. They're such a wind-up merchant. I think to myself, If they become a Christian, what a difference Jesus would make in their lives. And what an impact it would have. But it's just not going to happen. They're not going to become Christians. They share no interest in the Christian faith. There's so much disdain. And their mindset and their lifestyle are so clearly at odds with the values of God's kingdom and of God's word. They'll never become Christians. Maybe you've got a list like that. And, you know, I think I would have thought exactly the same thing about Zacchaeus, the tax collector that we read about in Luke chapter 19. If you look at verse 1, we learn that he lived in Jericho. And in verse 2, he was a chief tax collector and very rich. Now, Jericho was a very prosperous place, a very important town. It was positioned in the Jordan Valley, and therefore it served as a controlling gateway between Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and the lands to the east of the Jordan. It had a great palm forest and world-famous balsam groves that perfumed the air for miles around. I mean, you could smell Jericho before you could see it. The historian Josephus, he once described Jericho as a divine region, the fattest in all of Palestine. Unsurprisingly, it was one of the greatest taxation centres. And in verse 2, we read that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That meant he would receive a share of all taxes collected. And furthermore, it meant that he controlled the customs points for all the goods coming in and out from the east. I mean, can you imagine all the profits to be made? Now, of course, what made Zacchaeus so hated, my friends, was that he worked for the occupying Roman government. He was a traitor who had Roman legionnaires ruthlessly enforcing his demands and protecting him as he fleeced his fellow countrymen out of their hard-earned cash. Basically, if you ever had a complaint about Zacchaeus' tax demands, then he would soon be knocking on your door with the local Roman centurion. Now, just to get the emotion of this, let me just ask you this. Think of a builder, for example. What would you think of a builder, for example, who fleeces an old lady out of her lifelong savings and charging extortionate sums 
for repairs that don't need to be done. That's how people felt about Zacchaeus. Imagine, let me explore your imagination for a second. Imagine you're watching him now, going by on the estate, in his Rolls Royce or in his Tesla, he's probably got both. He's being driven into his guarded, luxurious house. It's overflowing with gourmet food and all the servants you could ever wish for. And as he goes by, you're thinking, his taxes and extortion put my parents out of their family business. He's the reason why my children or my grandchildren haven't eaten properly and cannot go to school. He's the reason why my sister's home got repossessed. So, what I'm saying is, this is a message for adults. It's not just a sweet little Sunday school story about a little man who climbs up a tree to see Jesus. Honestly, there is a real darkness here. Ironically, the name Zacchaeus means pure or righteous. His parents got that wrong. He couldn't be further away from it. In fact, the people of Jericho would have been horrified to think that out of all the inhabitants of Jericho, of their town, his name would be the one known by millions of people 2,000 years later. So, let's join Luke, the doctor and the historian, as he tells us three important things in this story. Firstly, Zacchaeus was rich and lost. Zacchaeus was rich and lost. We see in verse 2 that he was rich, and in verse 10 we are told that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, it's not often that rich people are described as lost, is it? I mean, surely riches give you a cushion and a security. They give you protection. Surely they get your feet onto the property ladder. They can boost your education. And if your health goes, I mean, you can go private. You can go to Boopa if you like. I mean, in a, in a pandemic that we have experienced over the last couple of years, yes, you might be in a storm, but you're not in the same boat, are you? You may have a decent garden, which would have been great during the rule of six. And maybe other bits and bobs, just to ease the isolation. You can't be rich and lost, can you? Well, Dr. Luke keeps reminding us that riches can blind us to the fact that life is so fragile, transient and short. May I submit to you that one of the great benefits of this pandemic is that there's been a reset on death. It's gone from being an absolute taboo subject to a reality that you're allowed to talk a bit more openly about. So many people have died. And I don't know, but perhaps as a medical doctor, Luke saw this more clearly. Maybe he had lots of rich patients coming to him and offering large sums of money if he could cure them of their disease, which he knew would kill them in six months. I mean, certainly, Dr. Luke, he would have echoed Jesus' warning to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You don't have to turn to it, but Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he starkly warns them, You say that I am rich and that I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize 
that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And in this vein, Dr. Luke famously quotes Jesus' parable about this rich fool in chapter 12, verse 19 of his gospel. This rich man, he says to himself, hmm, you've got ample goods laid up for you for many years. Take life easy. Eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. So this man in chapter 12, he lives with no thought whatsoever about God and no thought about judgment. And he finds himself eternally lost. What a fool, you may say. Again, chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us another parable of a rich man who, verse 19, dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day, and he ignored the beggar Lazarus at the gate and the warnings of the Bible. And as a result, as a result, he finds himself eternally lost in hell. And then, if you remember, we get those terrible words that diagnose the nature of this rich man's blindness from Abraham. Listen to this. Son, says Abraham, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. Remember how you lived in luxury and also how you ignored the poor around you. So, in other words, this rich man took all the gifts from God, but treated them as givens instead of gifts. And he finds that God will not be mocked, and God judges such sins of omission. But here is the issue. Here is the issue today. It's so hard to see this lostness when you're rich. How do you show People, how do you show people this gulf between me and my maker and my judge and show such people that it really, really matters? The trouble with this lostness is that you cannot photograph it. And can, I mean, I can put up a photo, sure, of the poor and you can immediately recognise that they are going to be lost. I can put up a photo of the sick and you will tell that they are lost immediately. But this lostness is different. I can put a picture of myself on Instagram, for instance, of good health, wear a really amazing suit, and I can have a bulging wallet. But nevertheless, Jesus insists these two words that describe such people like Zacchaeus. Rich and lost. And I wonder, is that you? Are you rich? Have disposable income? and yet describe yourself as lost. How do these words in Luke's Gospel describe you? The second thing that we learn, though, wonderfully in this story, is that Jesus saves the lost. Jesus saves the lost. Zacchaeus, verse 3, wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, verse 5, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. 
So he came down and at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. Now, sometimes short people are good at squirming their way through to the front of a crowd. I cannot testify I'm too big. But in Zacchaeus' case, there is just no hope at all. Once the crowd see who it was trying to find Jesus, surely you can imagine their elbows locking in together. Don't you think? I mean, they would not want him to stand a chance. So the only chance for Zacchaeus in this case was to leave his briefcase on the ground and pop his wallet into his back pocket, forget the pinstripe suit and shin his way up the tree. Now, I'm told that sycamore fig trees are apparently a bit like English oaks, easier to climb with a short trunk and with wide branches. So once Zacchaeus has done that, he's climbed up. Please notice what happens next. What happens next is that Jesus takes over. He takes the initiative. It's all Jesus here. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Can you see that it's Jesus who chooses Zacchaeus? Now, you don't need to think too hard to read this as a baffling choice, right? I mean, everyone would advise Jesus, including myself, if I'm honest, against putting Zacchaeus on his team. I mean, if you're wanting to bring in God's kingdom, put Zacchaeus there, Jesus, you're going to kill your kingdom project stone dead. Now, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, then you'll see that this is one of many baffling stories. For example, in chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee, a religious uh, leader, and a tax collector. Not Zacchaeus, but a different one. But what happens in the end is that you find the religious leader, he is out, but the tax collector is in. Later on, children are then brought to Jesus. And what happens is the disciples want to keep them away from Jesus because they saw children as insignificant. But Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. After this, a very moral, rich, young ruler, he comes onto the scene and he's also out. But the beggar Lazarus is in. And now Zacchaeus. Can you spot the pattern? But surely, how can this be? You must be scratching your head like myself and you're thinking, how, what principle is Jesus working on here? I mean, let me me borrow your imagination again. Say you were in charge of bringing in the kingdom of God and establishing his church. And you could have picked absolutely anybody to be on your leadership team. Would you honestly pick a thief, a child and a beggar, just as Jesus does in these chapters? But again, look at what Jesus does. He comes and he calls Zacchaeus by name. When Zacchaeus, when when Jesus, verse 5, reached the spot of Zacchaeus, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. There's no mistake in identity, is there? There aren't two Zacchaeuses up the tree. Jesus knows exactly who he is talking to. He's not blind to the man's failures and his faults. Jesus knows the entire truth about Zacchaeus and his life. But what we see 
is real acceptance. I must stay at your house today. The word must here in the original language means dai in Greek. And what it means is, is that it's, it's God's will. In other words, Jesus is saying, it is God's will for me to stay with you, Zacchaeus. It's part of my divine mission. This is God's moment for you, Zacchaeus. It's such a personal call. He's called you by name. And all of a sudden, the most unpopular man in the whole town, the most hated man in the whole town, the most sinful man in the whole town, he hears his name called by the great prophet, priest and king Jesus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus. Can you imagine how startled he must have been feeling at that point? I mean, out of all the crowd, with all those religious leaders, Zacchaeus, the worst of sinners, and out of all the town, he is called personally by name by Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd who calls his own shape by name and leads them out. Back in Genesis chapter 3, you may remember uh, we're in the Garden of Eden, and what happens is that God He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he came into the garden and he personally called Adam and he said, Adam, Adam, where are you? And later God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham, then Jacob, and then Moses, then Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, Solomon. He called them all by name. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, he calls them all by name. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the New Testament, he calls all his disciples by name. Remember, he went on the seashore and he called out, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John. And from the receipt of the customs, another man like Zacchaeus, Matthew, another tax collector, he gets called by name, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus straight away. And again, on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, on the island of Patmos, Jesus says, John. He called them by name, all of them. What's your name? Joseph, Rebecca, Felix. He calls all of you this morning by name. Today. He knows your name in that he knows everything about your life. And he calls you and he is saying, I want to come into your house. I want to come into your heart. I am the good shepherd. You can trust me. And to have fellowship, house fellowship with someone, it was a massive deal of acceptance back in those days in first century Judaism. This is why I think we get verse 7, if you look down, verse 7. When all the people saw this, the crowd, they began to mutter. Yeah, he has gone into the guest house of a sinner. In other words, they are saying, Jesus, as a teacher, as the son of God, you must know that God is holy. And that he cannot tolerate sinners. He cannot mix with sinners like this man. But he does. So what we have here is both truth and acceptance. And I think if we're honest, we long for both of them, don't we? 
Somebody who knows the whole truth about us, so that we don't need to put on a front, and yet still fully accepts us. Lockdown, if I confess, may I submit to you, lockdown has sometimes stripped away the sanitised, acceptable image of ourselves, which we all often like to conjure up. Certainly done that with me, as on a number of occasions when I've lost my temper. I see the truth, the ugly truth, I'm so ashamed. But Jesus offered both truth and acceptance to Zacchaeus. There are no masks here. Jesus sees all of his sin, and yet he is fully for him. But you might be sat there and you might be thinking, you might be asking yourself, how can this be? How can it be? Well, if you look at verse 9, we're told, today, says Jesus, salvation has come to this house. And in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But how can this be? How can it be? Well, I wonder if you can remember how this story started back in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And if you know Luke's gospel at all, you'll know that this phrase is really important. Passing through. Because at this moment in time, Jesus at this point, he is heading towards Jerusalem. He is heading for the cross. And he will end his life Hanging alongside sinners, the worst kind of sinners, murderous thieves. He'll end his life nailed to the cross, identified as a sinner, treated like a sinner, judged like one, damned like one. So that all we sinners, all of us today, may have our our sins taken in our place, where our sins can be taken, confessed, paid for, and remembered no more. If you're not a Christian here this morning, or if you might describe yourself as drifting, we're so happy that you are here, whether in person or tuning in online. But may I say this to you? There is only one way to hell. The only way that you can get to hell is by trampling over the cross of Jesus. He stands here before us and he blocks the way, paying in death and blood for our sin. And the only way we can get to hell is by trampling over that cross, by disregarding what Jesus has done for us. But listen, Jesus is saying to you, he's saying to me, no, do not do that. Do not go there. I'm blocking the way. And I've paid for you to go to the new creation and for you to be with me forever. And I've proved it with my resurrection that I can take you there. Because the coffin is not an exodus box. My friends, it's the cross that makes the difference. A massive difference. It makes what, it makes truth and acceptance both possible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor. Um, but he was executed by the Nazis. He once wrote this. Complete truthfulness is only possible where sin has been uncovered and forgiven by Jesus. The cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it's the only power which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth.
That's the wonder of the Christian faith, you see. You can tell God the truth and he still accepts you because his son has paid for your sin, my sin. And so with that in mind, I live an unguarded life. I don't mind you seeing right through me. I know it's not great. That's why I became a Christian. That's why I need forgiveness. Being a Christian, you know, it isn't about wondering whether you are good enough. But it's about recognising that you're bad enough to know that you need forgiveness. What a place to rest my identity. In that place of salvation. In that place of truth and acceptance. What a message to get out into Loughborough and beyond. A message of truth and acceptance. Zacchaeus was rich and lost. But wonderfully, Jesus saves the lost. And finally, Zacchaeus repented. Zacchaeus repented. I'd like to speak for a moment to those who find themselves today up the tree, if I can put it that way. Maybe you're having a little look online today or in person. We're really glad you are here with us. And you're just peering in and you're just wondering, what is it all about? The pandemic has certainly understandably made you ask questions. But maybe one of those questions is going through your mind, and it has certainly gone through my mind and Zacchaeus's as well, is what is it going to cost me if I get involved with Jesus? And the answer is, it costs Zacchaeus a packet. Take a look at verse 8. Or just listen. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, by the way, the word if here means he certainly has, I will pay back four times the amount, which is 400% compensation. So repentance here. It's not simply just a change of heart, though it really is a big miracle in itself. In Judaism, repentance involved restoration, making amends, as it were. Now, please understand me here. What's going on here? This is not Zacchaeus buying his way into heaven. If you could do that, then it would be so easy for rich people to do it, right? This is not Zacchaeus doing that. And it's not even Zacchaeus being religious. It's not Zacchaeus saying, look, I'll prove that I'm not a sinner. I'll I'll give all my money back and I'll give it all away, everything I've got to spare. That's not what Zacchaeus is doing here. No, what is happening here is that for the very, very first time in his life, Zacchaeus has taken his eyes off his money. And he's looked up to Jesus. He's looked at Jesus instead. And he's so grateful of what he has discovered about the Lord Jesus that he can give away his one and only prop. And that's why he's being able to do it. It's because God has done such a miracle in him and transformed his heart. That's that's actually how anyone becomes a Christian. And so here we see the promise of chapter 18 verse 27 being demonstrated in real life. Namely... That what is impossible with man is perfectly possible with God, says Jesus. And in Zacchaeus, we see the impossible happening, don't we? 
his head, his heart, and his wallet being converted. He was rich, and he's now giving it all away because he's found something else. No, sorry, he's found somebody else. And in Jesus, he is valued beyond his wildest dreams. He's got standing. He's got real security. He's got real hope and a life actually worth living and a new generous heart. Of course, if I spend my time up the tree just looking at what it costs me, I'll still be so lost. Now, trying to, trying to looking on Jesus instead, that's what we need to do. We need to just stop peering in and we need to take that step. We need to really look at who Jesus is. And if I may say it so gently, can I suggest that in the pandemic that we've been experiencing and with all the conflict that's been happening around the world, please do this before you die because you don't know when that's going to happen. So, as we close this morning, I want to ask you, I want to ask you if you're a Christian, do you expect, do we expect Zacchaeus to be converted today? Or is this story just to be left in the Bible? So when Jesus, you know, when he warns it out in the end and tells us in verse 10 that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, was that full stop meant to be coming at the end of the first century? Is that statement still applying or is it not being applying at all anymore? In other words, what lives are we expecting Jesus to turn around today? What difference might this story in Luke's Gospel make to our evangelism as a church family? Well, here's something to take away. Here's something I think which is a real big lesson from today if you're a Christian. Don't judge whom you think Jesus will call. He is always at work and often in the hidden depths of an individual's heart, calling sinners to himself. So let's trust God's generous grace and do our part as we pray and proclaim the gospel. In other words, never write anybody off and wait for the Lord's, just wait for the Lord's surprises, you know? You never know who might get converted. Think of the, think of the depths of a heart that the Lord will be working in today, this morning. We don't know who they will be, but we just pray and we keep speaking. Hollywell Church must never be a church that writes anyone off, as the crowd did back in verse 7. This story in Luke's Gospel, it's made me pray more for those people that I mentioned right at the beginning. That person who's solely focused on their career and making money. That athlete whom people worship. That family member who continues to mock my Christian faith in one way or another. It's made me pray because if God can do it for Zacchaeus and for me, he can also do it for them. And finally, finally, perhaps... Perhaps we are shocked by the scale of Zacchaeus' repentance, giving away half of his goods and paying back four times of what he owed. He wondered if he had any money left. But more importantly, this story makes us ask the big question, have I repented as Zacchaeus did in some area of my life where Jesus calls for change? Have I called Jesus Lord 
as Zacchaeus called Lord. And if I'm struggling to do that, just look at the truth and acceptance which Jesus gives you and trust in him to know what's best. Honestly, he knows everything about you, even your deepest secrets that you've never shared with anybody. And yet, and yet, he fully and truly accepts you. He came to die for you. And so as we pray and lay our lives before him today, he will give us the power to change. Maybe you're sat here and you're thinking, I'm just too far gone. I cannot become a Christian. There's no way in heaven or on earth that Jesus would want anything to do with me. Well, I hope from this morning that you've been encouraged to think again. If God can transform Zacchaeus, and for the people that you know, he can most certainly do it for you also. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for, for this reminder that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Lord God, please help us as believers not to have any prejudices on whom we share the gospel with. Please help us to share the gospel with anybody, including those we find easy to talk to and hang around with, and those that we find most difficult. Please help us, Lord God, to not write anybody off. Because if Jesus can transform such people like Zacchaeus and ourselves, he can also do it for those around us, our neighbours, our colleagues, our flatmates in, in university, anybody. And Lord God, we do pray for those who are looking in and those who will call themselves Christians this morning. Lord God, please, by your Holy Spirit, would you be at work in their hearts this morning? Because Jesus, you came to seek and save them also. All these things we pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen.